0: Autonis, le stat
1: class, le bifo, ils sont chouettes Les avis pédants et super, une fête Je pense que c'est effectively cool Je pense que c'est effectively wild Effectivement sauvage Effectivement sauvage
0: Hello and welcome to episode 2075 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. We've got ourselves some series here.
1: <laughs> we do. We have <laughs> We have some series. I mean, we technically had series before, Ben. We had them. We did. They were in our grasp, yeah. but now they are... More competitive, they are, in one case, evenly matched. Mm -hmm. They featured a route. They also featured a controversial pitching change, which I am so happy was not decisive because Uh, I (laughs) find myself exhausted of this particular discourse. But here I am furthering it. So, you know, who's the sucker? It's probably me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, last time we talked, it looked like there might be sweeps everywhere Mm. we looked. It looked like these CSs might be over early. And now... Not so much. We're recording on Friday morning, so of course there will be more games on Friday. And so we will stick to what has happened in our part of the timeline here. But we have an even ELCS as we speak, and we have the Diamondbacks winning a game against the Phillies in the NLCS. So you were at that game. I was. And it was one of the better games of these playoffs, certainly of this round. So... Mm -hmm. Bring us the experience from Chase Field, where the Diamondbacks beat the Phillies <laughs> two to one on a walk off—the first walk off of these playoffs.
1: Yeah, isn't that wild? That's mm-hmm. the first walk off of the of the whole thing. That's yeah. that's surprising. I feel like we've mm-hmm. normally had at least one before now in most years. Well, let me let me uh, share some thoughts from the scene, um, and then I, I think we we do have to. Talk about the decision to pull foot. So here's here's some things that I witnessed uh, at Chase on Thursday. I know what day of the week it is. Yep, I'm <laughs> I'm all I'm all awake. I I watched Philly's owner John Middleton. Almost this is a technical term that involves a swear each. Sh- In the Phillies (laughs) dugout, trying to share baseballs with Philly fans, Um, I saw that
0: too (laughs) via video. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think that we are at. He did not fall, to be clear, and the the idea behind what he was doing uh, was so nice. And he, you know, he was dexterous and deft up there, but he was balancing very precariously. In dress shoes on (laughs) um, the back of one of the bullpen or dugout benches, rather. And it just felt like it had, you know, Philly's owner suffers concussion while attempting to engage with fans as a headline. But he thankfully did not meet his maker or the dugout floor. Mm -hmm. I think we need a a scientific study on the perfecting of pandering in that market now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean that. As as a profound compliment, like it feels um, sincere, it feels informed. I know pandering it suggests a a lack of sincerity, but if you can earnestly pander, I think that they figured it out. Both uh, Middleton and and Harper, more famously, so there was that. That was the thing I watched, and I sat there and I thought, you have better balance and a lot more money than me. How is that fair? You know, um, (laughs) make that. Makes sense. I don't have like a a strong rooting interest in this game as I in this series as I have said. You know the the backs are the team that I see the most often in terms of in person big league baseball. This Phillies team is so fun. I feel like I'm going to be sad when this series is over because I like both of these teams quite a bit. But you know you never want to sweeps. Don't feel good. They don't feel good to a fan base. They don't feel good to an organization. And when I got to the park. I think in part because a lot, you know, some percentage of the Philly fans who were at the game had traveled and thus were there early. I felt very nervous for the, the D backs faithful because most of the fans I saw were Phillies fans. They were being hyped up by their beloved owner, a weird <laughs> turn of phrase in modern baseball. <laughs> and um, they were sending out Ranger Suarez and he was being matched by Brandon Fott. And like, Fott is a promising young pitcher. But we have detailed some of the struggles that he has had in this postseason. He hasn't been able to go like super deep even in that Dodgers game um where he pitched well. You know, you could tell that they didn't want him to go too too far. And, He's got a very youthful face. He's a a rosy-cheeked young man, and I think that makes him look both younger and more stressed than he probably is in any given moment. And, you know, he's going up against Suarez, who just like, you know, you talk about like a slow heartbeat. And sometimes you watch Ranger Suarez pitch and you're like, is he alive at all? And I don't mean that (laughs) as a knock on his performance. He's just so steady his demeanor on the mound is so even Um, and he's quite good and he's pitched very well this postseason and so I just was like I don't want these young people to feel embarrassed you know Mm -hmm. I don't I don't want Corbin Carroll to walk away from this postseason run feeling like it ended on a flat note like that you know that's a bad feeling for a young guy Mm -hmm. and so I was very I was nervous for them and then I will say like despite the very early start time Ballpark was full. It was loud. You know, the crowd was into it much like in the the clinching game against the Dodgers. You could just feel them ready to erupt. You know, they were ready to have something to cheer for and they were they were given something early with FOT. Like I've at this point now seen a good bit of Faught as the best start I've ever seen um yeah. him throw. Yeah. It was it was quite good. He really kept them down. He sequenced well. He mix, mixed in his pitches as well. You could tell the slider was working really well for him. And, you know, he's able to get ahead. He was able to get strikeouts. He just, he, he threw like the game of his young professional life. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was great. And like, because, you know, there were strikeouts to be had and a, a good a good number of them, you know, he gave the the crowd there something to get really excited about and against a, you know, a Phillies lineup that has been so fearsome and that had really jumped on Gallen and Kelly who are, you know, have had a good deal more professional success than Fott has, like to have, it felt like a victory for him that they like, you know, they got through the first inning without having allowed a run which means they hadn't allowed a home run. And you were like, Oh, well, yeah. okay. Like that's new. That's a <laughs> mm-hmm. that's a new thing for this D backs team against the Phillies. And then he, you know, he kept going. And then Tori Lovello pulled him, sort of in keeping with his plan and kind of we'll talk about some of the factors that went into this. And boy, did he really get booed.
0: Yes, <laughs> he got, I heard that. <laughs> he
1: got he got quite he got quite booed and after the game in his post game availability, he said, you know, the, that, his conversations, he was asked sort of what the conversations in the dugout were with, with his bench coach and with, um, Brent Strom, his pitching coach in particular. And he said, the comments, uh, the conversations are very typical. Am I an idiot to take him out <laughs> of the game with night and strikeouts at five and two thirds? Mm-hmm. And, he knew what the stakes of that decision were and he was able to be lighthearted about it after the fact cuz they won but yeah. you could tell that he, he knew yeah. he knew that that was going to be a topic of discussion uh if things didn't go their way and so like we should talk we should talk about maybe let's pause and talk about the thought decision then we can talk about the the rest of the game what were your impressions sitting at home ben
0: <laughs> just <laughs> Oh no! Here we go again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, just buckle up. <laughs> Probably I was right. feeling a lot like Tori Lovello was because. Yeah. Didn't have a problem with the move itself, as was documented well by Jay Jaffe in his write-up of the game. Fat has just gotten creamed when he has stayed in for the the third time through the order, right? And like, you know, most pitchers, all pitchers are worse if if you have a big enough sample. But he has been particularly bad, whether that's meaningful or not, I don't know. But even after... He came back later in the season and was pretty effective. He was still not great, (laughs) third time through the order. So you just felt like, oh, here comes Schwarber, and it's just going to unravel potentially. But a lot of other people were probably feeling like, he's cruising. He's uh, looked lights out. So stick with the hot hands the hot arm. And it just felt like it was shaping up to be... (laughs) the same conversation that we've had so many times, right? So I have no rooting interest in this series whatsoever. And yet in the aftermath of that move, I was (laughs) really rooting for it not to backfire, you know, not not necessarily for the Diamondbacks to win, but for for whatever happened, not to be just a referendum on that move, right? Right. Because I just didn't want another round of, Did he pull the starter too early? Which we've just, we've hashed out over and over and over again in the past several postseasons, and there's just not that much new to say about it. And you know what the talking points will be on both sides, and we can never know what would have happened if you had left the guy in, right? So there's no way ever to just demonstrate convincingly that it was the right move in that particular instance, but you're just playing the numbers and the odds and the percentages, and that's just never gonna be satisfying to some people if it doesn't work out right away. It's the only rule is it has to work, or else you're gonna get second guessed and probably first guessed in this case too. And so when Sal Frank walked Schwerber.
1: <laughs>
0: then it was like, "Oh, <laughs> here mm-hmm. we go!" Right, but but then he got the inning-ending force out, and right. and then in the seventh, he walked Harper, and then Ryan Thompson came in, and
1: the, 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 the <laughs> was. <laughs> I'm laughing because of how how badly that that throw from Thompson missed. Yeah, it missed very badly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: yeah. (laughs) And it's, you know, you can be, you can laugh about it because it, it ended up um, not mattering, but Mm -hmm. it at the time was um, not good. So there's that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, and so Harper scored on that wild pitch and, and you could already see it sort of shaping up to, you know, like Jeff Passan was tweeting about how like the Phillies get a run in the first inning where, Brendan Fott didn't throw right and so right. you know which was a little I mean it, they got out of the inning where where he was in and they removed him and then it was a subsequent inning like how long was he gonna go realistically right. this is Brendan Fott you know right. like this is not the ace of your staff. This is right. not some dominant pitcher. So right. you really got to kind of count yourself lucky that you got such a great outing from him and then say thanks. And uh, we will now pass it to the next guy, right? So, but there was a run scored. And so again, like, I guess. Any scenario where the Diamondbacks had lost that game potentially, you might have seen some backlash to that decision because uh, people could have said, well, you leave them in and maybe the Phillies just never score. Like, you know, there's other right. relievers come in at a later time and sure. they hold the line, whatever it is. Anyway, I was just so relieved <laughs> yeah. that, that it worked out once. And, you know, partly, I guess, because uh, you can cite it as, hey, here's a time when they did that and it worked. And so it's it's not always the Snell decision where it instantly backfires, sure. but also just because we were spared the conversations that would have come out of that.
1: I think a lot of things can can be kind of true simultaneously. Like when when he was pulled, I felt like it was, I thought, this is a, this is a, Perfectly good and logical place to pull him. He had been told, we were told prior to the game, that he was looking at about 18 hitters plus or minus four, depending on how the lineup turned over and sort of where he was. He is averaged in like the mid-80s in terms of his pitches over his season. There have been times when he has gone longer than that, but, but he's averaged, I think, like 84, 85 pitches. And it just seemed like uh, a really logical spot to pull him because he gets through five and two-thirds. The top of the Phillies lineup is coming up. As you said, like his... I mean, granted, he has only had, you know, he has had like... 15 and a third innings where he is facing the order a third time through as a starter. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a small sample. And also point out that like five and two thirds is a small sample. So, like if we're (laughs) being, you know, and his woba allowed the third time through is 483. Like he's allowed a 779 slug. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that I don't know if you know this, but. Isn't good, you know. Very meanwhile, bit. Schwarber is has like a 996 OPS the f- third time he's facing a, a pitcher. So it just seemed like okay, you this young man like had a terrible showing in Milwaukee. He had a, a solid start against the Dodgers. He did allow some hard contact in that start. I I if I recall correctly, like the last time he had faced Schwarber in this game. The contact was loud. And so you get through five and two thirds, you have the opportunity to bring a reliever in with the bases empty to deal with the top of the lineup. I feel like you, you know, you give the the young man a pat on the back for having an an incredible start and hand things over to your bullpen. It just felt like a very smart place to do that. And I think that All of those things can be true. This can be a decision informed by, you know, what the Diamondbacks have seen from Fott over the course of a season, what they saw from him that night, what they know about his times through the order penalty, where in the lineup it's turning over. And you can still have an aesthetic preference that starters go deeper than that. Like, I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a perfectly reasonable preference, but I think we should just be careful to, not conflate that with like automatically good decision making, which isn't to say that every time a starter gets pulled, that's a good decision. Sometimes it's not. I didn't like when Jose Barrios got pulled in the -hmm. wildcard game, for instance, right? So, you know, I don't want to like overstate things, but I do think that we should just do the work of separating out like the decision-making process from our aesthetic preference and then we can have a conversation about like how much of good process we are willing to compromise in the name of potentially more pleasing you know pitching that's fine like and that's a compromise that fans might be willing to make I understand the Diamondbacks not being willing to make that compromise because they want to go to the World Series so Mm -hmm. like that's their project but I think that that those things can can all kind of be true at once and then you can you know you can sit there and be like wow maybe don't (laughs) sorry i'm still i'm still um i'm still thinking about that wild pitch because it was it was wild <laughs> it, it was, was. true it was quite <laughs> it was quite wild you yeah know? not every
0: wild pitch lives up to the billing <laughs> sometimes right. it's it's you know not uh, com- controlled pitch but right. it's not wild exactly that yeah. one was wild
1: that yeah. one was that one was wild mm-hmm. it was quite it was quite wild But yeah, so I I think that it's important to kind of keep those things in, in balance. Yeah. Like you're just, we know you're not guaranteed to continue to be excellent. Even starters with a much longer professional track record aren't guaranteed to like have the hot hands, you know, in the next inning. So I, I think that it's just a useful thing to keep in mind. And I, I asked Spot after the game, you know, does the fact that you know you have 18 plus or mi- minus four, like, does that change the way that you kind of dole out and and manage your effort Mm -hmm. as opposed to a start where you are just going to go until the manager pulls you and you don't quite know how long that is. And he said no, and I understand him saying that. You know, Mm -hmm. I know that Russell Carlton has looked at this question, and there is something to the idea that, like, it does, when there is a set sort of understanding of how many you're going to get, like, it can kind of change the way that you approach your start. It should, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, thoughts, you know, like, his fastball velo wasn't up relative to his seasonal averages. I think in the first inning it was actually down. So, like, you know, maybe for this particular pitcher that doesn't matter as much. But I also think that that's something to keep in mind, too, where when you have a guy and he knows kind of how long he has, it might, and to your point probably should, alter the way that he thinks about, you know, how he's – how much you know, how often he'll go max effort, that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, all of that kind of goes into the decision-making. And these are the decisions that, like, can be defining for for managers. And I don't envy them having to make them because, you know, Lavello talked post-game about you you sort of set up your decision-making in prior to the game in a dispassionate environment where you don't have emotion involved. Because, like, if you are... Tori Lavello and you're watching that start and you're not thinking about that stuff, you're probably like, oh my God, let this kid keep going. But you have to balance that with the stuff that you know and try to parse for yourself which of these things matters more in this particular moment. And I think Mm -hmm. going with a much larger sort of body of evidence and body of work is probably going to work to your benefit more often than not. And then you just have to hope that the guys after him can execute. You know, I think going to the relievers they did in the sequence they did makes a lot of sense. Even if, you know, Thompson sent a ball to the max stuff and, further, you know, it, it made a good bit of sense. I, I think, so that's that's sort of my take on the the thought stuff. I am curious to see like, you know, my view of this Diamondbacks team coming into the postseason was that base running was going to be a huge asset for them because they are a, a mm-hmm. good base running team you know obviously Corbin Carroll kind of leads the way in terms of steals and with McCarthy sidelined they they have a big drop off to their next stolen base leader but like you know even a slower guy like Christian Walker is a good base runner even if he's not stealing very often and it feels like the base running for them has been kind of sh- shaky this yeah. this go around and you know Lavello acknowledged as much after the fact um, so I I wonder if they will be able to clean that up in a way that proves beneficial to them because it didn't end up mattering in this game. But it's like they're like not going on contact when they should, and they are going on contact when they arguably maybe shouldn't. And, you know, it it again, it didn't matter, but like you're sitting there in the press box and you're like, How is Paven Smith not on third base right now? Like what is mm-hmm. happening? And then, you know, Perdomo walks and bails him out, so it doesn't matter. But it was um I was like, you you guys are really good at this though. And then yeah. and, and then this has been probably less good. So mm-hmm. you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, most of the moves Lavella made worked out well, right? The the yeah. fat decision ultimately paid off or didn't hurt him. And right. then he kind of switched up the lineup a little bit with the yeah. lefty, Ranger Suarez, starting. And and that paid off. Catal uh, Marte leading off ended up getting the biggest hit and a couple other hits, too. And Gabriel Moreno doubled. And, and then he puts in Paven Smith, the pinch hits with him, and he got a couple hits. So he was kind of leading a charmed life in that game. Yeah. And so the Phillies... Scored in the eighth, in the seventh, and then the Diamondbacks answered right away with the the Guriel double off of Kirkring, and then scoreless eighths for each team. Mm -hmm. Although Alvarado got in a bit of a jam for the Phillies and then got out of it. Yeah. And then we get to the ninth, and Seawald. Also gets in a little bit of trouble, but gets out of it. And then (laughs) Craig Kimbrell comes in and uh, we (sighs) talked last time about the fact that we did not really trust... Craig Kimbrell, uh-uh. that that he'd had some scoreless appearances, but that he never looked like they were going to be scoreless until he finally got the last out. Like he was just, you know, high whip, low ERA guy, just putting a lot of people on base and somehow wriggling out of it. And that ended here. So this was just kind of a classic Kimbrel adventure, walk, steal of second base. It's pretty easy to steal off of Kimbrel. Then a single, then defensive indifference and Payment Smith takes second, then a fielder's choice, then a walk, then a single. So you're wondering, is he going to somehow get out of this? Will he get a double play or something? No. So, Catel Marte. Gets the liner to center and two runs score or one run scores, uh, one run scores and and that's the ball game. So two to one. So, we, you know, we kind of had an inkling and I'm sure many Phillies fans had the inkling that you keep running Kimperl out there in those yeah. high leverage spots and eventually it's uh, going to blow up on you. And this time it did.
1: Yeah, I think we should take a moment to make note of three very impressive performances in this. So first, like... Man is Catel Marte having a hell of a postseason. Mm-hmm. Like he's having a he's having a, quite a good good little run and like hitting it when the rest of that D-backs lineup has gone pretty cold. So good job, Catal Marte. One eighty WRC plus in the postseason. Uh, probably, like good on good on you. Yeah. Rangers Suarez was excellent in this game. Yep. <laughs> like Rangers Suarez was very good. Rangers Suarez has been very good this entire postseason. The way that he is able to mix in the breaking and off-speed stuff he has is fantastic. It really gave the D-backs fits. Like, he he is very good. We should take a moment to be like, hey, good job. And then uh, maybe it was just those two. Maybe those were the only two. Oh, and Trey Turner had that really nice play. What a, what a mm-hmm. wow, what a play. What a play, yeah. Ben. And, you know, he's had moments where he has, he kind of has games sometimes where he's like a little deer in the headlights. And you're like, mm-hmm. what's going on with you? Because, like, you're capable of that. And, like, then sometimes you're just, like, booting a, Booting one, you're booting one, but you know sometimes when you have a big pitching decision and you have a walk off, now Cattell was instrumental in that walk off, obviously, but like you should t- we should take a moment to like acknowledge the the smaller stuff here that gets kind of lost because yeah, it's been. Really good. Can I tell you something weird? Mm-hmm. It's weird to be on the field and have Bryce Harper at first base. I'm not used to that yet. That's weird. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, they they didn't take BP, the Phillies. They haven't, I don't think they've taken BP since they've gotten to Arizona. I wonder if they will today, Ben. Do you mm-hmm. think they will? I wonder if they're like, oh, we got to take BP. We didn't hit well yesterday. I, I always wonder like how much that stuff kind of resonates. But um, they were taken infield and uh and there he is. He's Bryce Harper, first baseman. It's weird. Mm -hmm. i don't know if i like it i mean like i i'm happy that he's playing and playing a reasonable first base but um it's weird Uh, Mm -hmm. yeah so there you go Mm -hmm.
0: yeah all right well we'll see what happens in the rest of that series and uh we will reconvene next week to talk about that and then over in the al things have changed quite a bit since we last spoke (laughs) last time we talked it was 2 nothing Texas and they were coming home yeah. and so uh, we were saying and they have these reinforcements in the rotation so unlike the Diamondbacks who now have to go to Brandon Fott, <laughs> the Rangers yeah. can go to Max Scherzer yeah. and it uh, turns out much better to have Brandon fought in in this series than Max Scherzer, so Scherzer wasn't great. Like you just you never knew what you were going to get out of Scherzer and Gray. It was a nice, uh, I guess, morale boost to get them back, but after their long layoffs injury-related layoffs, no less. You just really didn't know if they were going to be rusty or if they were just going to be compromised in some way. And they both were. They were both fairly ineffective. So so that was one problem for the Rangers. Yeah. And also the Astros' offense woke up because... Uh, they can mash too. And they had demonstrated that they could really rake earlier in the postseason and during the regular season, especially late in the regular season. And then the bats awoke. And even though Jordan was robbed of one home run, (laughs) they have uh, still managed to just pile some runs on. And uh, 10 runs, in fact, in game four. And now it's even, and the Astros, who've been a very successful road team all season for whatever that's worth, that has continued to be the case in this series. And now, you know, it's uh, not far from a toss-up, really. So so that's where we are, anyone who was uh, counting the Astros out. Nope, they're not dead yet.
1: They're not dead yet. They're not dead yet. And I don't feel... Any particular way other than I'm ready for some from for some new representation in the World Series from uh, mm-hmm. from the American League. That home run robbery was pretty incredible. That was Realities. really nice. Yeah. That was mm-hmm. really nice. But yeah, they're I mean, the Astros are relentless. They score and score and score. It's weird. It's so. This, you know, I don't think it means anything. But like the split between their road and home performance is so weird, Ben. It's just yeah. such a. It's such a strange thing, but yeah, they're they're relentless and we talked about how we were confident that at some point the roll of it all would prove an issue for the Phillies and, you know, the 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 Rangers pitching situation granted a lot of this has to do with their starters, but the bullpen continues to not be like amazing. Mm-hmm. So, it's just uh, you know, I don't know, they they, on the one hand, the Rangers feel very vulnerable to me, but also they get to throw Montgomery and Nathan Navaldi their next two games, and like that's going right. pretty well for them. So, yeah. I I find myself kind of not knowing what to make of it. I mean, I, I guess that on balance, like our depth charts, for instance, view Houston as the superior team. A lot of that is the bullpen, but they they are thought to be the better team you don't know what you would be getting with scherzer in a potential game seven so like it's a and you know john gray isn't a much better option so Mm -hmm. you're just kind of in a weird you're in a weird spot and i don't know it's gonna be maybe it's creed's fault you know Maybe, (laughs) maybe maybe the rangers will go back to houston and there won't be creed and then they'll win, and then mm. they'll have to and then do they'll some have soul to retire searching. The bit. Yeah, yeah, they'll have to like, because it's like it's one thing to be playing. They were there, Ben. They were, yeah. they were in the building. There were a lot of people in the building that night that I'm not a huge fan of, but like Creed was one of them. Creed <laughs> as a group, I don't know them as people. Maybe mm-hmm. they're nice. They might be perfectly nice, but their music is not to my taste. So I gotta do with less creed i wonder if they will mix it up maybe they will go with something else but do you do you mess with the the mojo, you know, they're such yeah. a superstitious bunch. Baseball players,
0: right? But the Astros have messed with the mojo the last couple games. So, yeah, yeah, that? but you, you got to feel good. You, you're going back to big game Montgomery, and then yeah. Evaldi, who's uh, yeah. looked like his good self lately. So, so yeah, like I'm sure the Astros feel okay about Justin Verlander starting Game Five, but then you've got Fromber, who has right. been shaky, as yeah. we've mentioned, and then I don't Flappable. know what you. Quite yeah, flappable. Quite flappable. I don't know what you do in game seven for either team, for that matter. It's yeah. I mean, we didn't talk about the fact that uh, in the Diamondbacks Phillies series, you've got the Diamondbacks going with a, a bullpen game, yeah. right, in in game five. Yeah, Joe romantic
1: play yeah. to open, and then they'll kind of play matchups from there.
0: Yes, former All-Star, of course. <laughs> Just obligated to Aww. say that <laughs> about him every time, but but... Yeah, and then the Phillies are going with Christopher Sanchez, who yeah. who is a, is a starter, though yeah. certainly a lot less well known than the other Phillies starters. Yeah, so so that's solid. And and then you know the the Diamondbacks will have to face Zach Wheeler, of course, but they'll be back to their guys too. Yeah. So I just I don't know what you do in Game Seven if the ALCS gets to that, right. Then, yeah, with the Rangers, I mean, I guess I guess you've got to run Scherzer out there again, right? Like, he's Max Scherzer. It's it's Game 7. Maybe you hope that he shook the rust off in this game and uh, he'll be back to something closer to form in Game 7. It's just like, what are your better options? Because. Right great, didn't look great. And no. Heaney and Dunning were both extremely ineffective too in in the last game. So I don't know that you feel great about running those guys out there. So I don't know if you do like a just group effort, yeah. Johnny Holstaff sort of thing. Like Again, it's not like they have some great Bullpen that they can count on and go bullpen game because there's just not a whole lot there that you would want in a game seven. But I guess you could just mix and match with Heaney and Dunning and Scherzer and Gray and just try to get it through it somehow. Yeah, I, Urquidy was was not good either for the Astros in that game. So no. yeah, we're we're not really set up for like a game seven pitchers duel of of the ages here right. at least in terms of of the probable starters
1: it will be an all hands on deck sort of situation and you're right it won't be the it won't be the most compelling matchup it is a bummer when like the the game 7s have the potential to be sloggy you don't want game 7 to be sloggy you want it to be dynamic you know yeah
0: i guess the the astros could go back to javier so they're yeah. they're in better shape than the yeah. rangers where it's just kind of a shrug question right. mark
1: <laughs> yeah i didn't watch a single pitch of that um, mm-hmm. Astros Rangers game. Can I confess to that? I didn't watch even one pitch because yeah. it started while uh, I was still at the ballpark, and then by the time I was done being at the ballpark, it did not seem like a game that one needed to rush to see. You know, yeah. by mm-hmm. that by that time, it was. Uh, pretty well out of hand so
0: yes yeah Yeah. and the Astros uh, tacked on it was eventually 10 to 3 and it was yeah not not super exciting or or suspenseful by the end because the the Astros they jumped out to a 3 nothing lead in the top of the first right and then the Rangers got three runs back over the next couple innings and it seemed like okay we've got a got an interesting game here and then the Astros kind of broke it open with four in the fourth and then they tacked on three more in the later innings so yeah not a lot of late intrigue in that one as there was in the Phillies Diamondbacks game so I'm I'm just glad that we got at least one close competitive game with, uh, you know, tied late and, and a lead change and a walk-off. And then in the ALCS, if the actual games have not been the most compelling, at least the series has has evened up and that makes it more compelling.
1: Yeah, the Phillies have been involved in the two the two games that I would deem the best of, um, mm-hmm. and just from a neutral observer perspective, I'm sure if you're um, a fan of any of these clubs and they've had big blowouts, that that's been that's been very exciting. Yep. But like you know, they had that game that game against the Braves where Harper got doubled off. That was very exciting, and then they had yesterday's game. So. They are, whatever ends up happening against Arizona, I think the stars of the postseason to my mind, because they have been very fun and compelling in their own right, and they've happened to be in both those good games. So what are you going to do? You got you to gotta hand it to them, Ben. Mm-hmm. You got to hand it to them.
0: Yeah. We got a, a question that was prompted by that last ALCS game that was sent with the subject line, emergency pedantic alert. <laughs> Which, might be might be an oxymoron i don't know if any of our pedantic <laughs> alerts are emergencies but james wanted to know he said during the fox telecast of game 4 of astros versus rangers a recap graphic told us that the rangers scored quote three unanswered runs to tie the game which was immediately followed or answered by mm-hmm. a graphic stating that houston scored four runs in the fourth inning to take a 7 to 3 lead I can't see how the third run by Texas was not answered. If it is truly unanswered, every run a team scores is unanswered. What am I missing here? Thought you would know. <laughs> now I will finish watching the game. <laughs> <He wrote this laughs> before the game was even over, he just had to know immediately. So I don't know if we, it seems like we would have talked about this at some point, but I, I searched the wiki and, and didn't see anything immediately. So what is an unanswered run? So, so what, happened in this game, as I said. So the Astros scored three in the top of the first. Yeah. Rangers didn't score in the bottom of the first. Astros didn't score in the top of the second. Then the Rangers scored two in the bottom of the second and one in the bottom of the third. So at that point, it's 3-3. Three, three. And then, top of the fourth, the Astros score four. So, so what is an unanswered run in your mind?
1: <sighs> huh. <laughs>
0: Sounds like the sort of thing you take for granted and then suddenly yeah. you start thinking about it and it's like, huh. Well. I, see, I, I think James has a point here yeah. because generally an unanswered run, I, I think, is you score uninterrupted and, and there's no responding run, right? Because because you could say, I mean, if you say the Rangers scored three unanswered runs, you could take that to mean that they scored three runs before the Astros scored any, after that, right? Like it, it was uninterrupted. You know, they they scored right. three. All the run scoring was consecutive. Like the Rangers right. scored three consecutive runs yeah. before the Astros yes. scored another.
1: But, but they were you, they yeah. were ultimately answered. They were yeah. ultimately
0: answered. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or certainly the. The last of the three right. was answered by the four that the, the f- Astros <laughs> that then subsequently scored. Right, so, so in order to have a, an unanswered run, does that mean that the other team cannot score again in the game? It has I to be think, the the last word on scoring in that game.
1: I think. I think. Yeah, but yes, I think that that's would be my preferred usage. So here's a question. Okay. Can you score unanswered runs and still lose? I
0: think so, yeah. I think you
1: can, too. So, like, yeah. like imagine... You probably
0: wouldn't see it said yeah, that way. Yeah, you wouldn't say that. Yeah, you wouldn't say that
1: way. But, like, would we take issue... Let's change up the, the scenario here. Let's imagine that the Astros had scored four runs in their first inning instead of three, and then the Rangers score three unanswered runs but they still lose does that scan as a a, i mean you're right that it wouldn't be the way that anyone would write it because we'd be writing about them losing we'd be saying that they lost yeah but it wouldn't i think i think it would still be technically correct
0: yes i think so so you get the best kind of correct so so the (laughs)
1: yeah
0: i'd say the astros scored seven unanswered runs at at the end of that game, right? Because their their last seven runs were scored after right. the Rangers' final run. So so the Astros scored seven unanswered runs there. But yeah, I I think you could say what uninterrupted runs or something yeah. like that, maybe. But but unanswered, yeah. I think yeah. that that implies that there were no further <laughs> runs scored.
1: And uninterrupted is a little dicey too mm-hmm. because it implies. I think that for it to be uninterrupted, and then why would you say that? It's like it has uninterrupted. To be one inning, but, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah ben.
0: And then yeah, yeah, you can't interrupt <laughs> one team's half inning right. of scoring. Right. No, so, definitely not. Yeah, or famously or it against like, the rules. Yeah, I was wondering if it if it might have something to do with. The inning in which you score, like occasionally you might hear someone say like they won the inning or something, like if if the team outscored another team in the right. inning or so, like maybe if you score like the Astros scored three in the top of the first and then the Rangers did not score in the bottom of the first, mm-hmm. they scored in the bottom of the second.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: maybe someone could argue that the Rangers didn't answer those Astros runs cuz they didn't score in the bottom half of the inning when the Astros scored their runs but but they still they answered the next inning yeah. in the next two innings they scored more runs and it's it's not like the Astros could have answered in the same inning that the Rangers scored their third run because that was the bottom of the inning so it was then the top half when the Astros got a chance to answer so <laughs> <laughs> I think I think James is on to something here. I don't know if it's an emergency, but I would also triple yeah. <laughs> with the wording of of
1: unanswered. I I, I feel confident it's not an emergency, uh-huh. but I am I am sympathetic to the the to your ears perking up and going. Well, hey, wait a minute, because yeah, cause, yeah <laughs> I I think I think it's an in I think it's an improper use of unanswered. I really okay. do. They were, right. they were they were they were very strongly answered you know yeah. as it turned out they ended emphatically up being emphatically <laughs> yeah emphatically Wow, same brain crazy all <laughs>
0: right mm. well glad we got that straight that was important <laughs> yeah, <straighten> out. <laughs> um
1: it's it's true it's really <laughs> important you know i need ben some some more stuff to happen in any mm-hmm. of these games because well, i think you said it last time like what's there to What's there yeah. to say? Maybe in some ways that was um, the little gift that that Tori Lavello gave us. He was like, I I know you don't like this discourse, but it is discourse. So here mm-hmm. it is. As opposed yeah. to you know, it's weird for us to be so opposed to discourse considering that we host a <laughs> we depend on discourse. Podcast. Yes.
0: <laughs> we do discourse. Yeah. We
1: do discourse, but sometimes the the discourse makes us feel tired and mm-hmm. we are resentful of that because we're already tired. You know, we're busy people. We're we're tired. Here's a mystery I want solved. Why does Chase Field smell like crayons? There are parts of Chase Field. They just smell like crayons, Ben. Why do they <laughs> smell like crayons? No also, idea. I said the word crayons to people who are not from the West Coast, and they're like, you mean crayons? And I was like, crayons. say Oregon yeah. correctly. Say it correctly <laughs> even one time. No, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> yeah. I say Oregon now because I know that's how you're supposed to say it. That's as, how you're supposed to say it. As a Now, do you say Oregonian or Oregon? Oregonian, yeah. Or, so but, you still you but, still like, say but, that.
1: The, okay. The the paper is the Oregonian. Like that's right. one of the the papers.
0: But, but you don't say Oregonian. Org- no, but because that
1: would sound stupid.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, well, I would have thought that that organ Oregon sounded stupid because I I grew up saying it Oregon, and I, Oregon. I guess uh, Oregonians thought that sounded stupid. So I've yeah. since learned no, to like say Oregon. like organ, like what you, I, what
1: you have in your body. I do say know? crayon, though. Yeah, yeah, I know. people, <laughs> Mince was giving me grief about. Cran. He was like, "What the? What the? Is a crayon, You know. And I was like, "It's a you know, like you draw with like you the colors in a box. You know, you get a sure. box of them. You get a box of crans." Yeah,
0: we know what they are. Just yeah, not yeah. not what you were <laughs> referring to. Yeah, <laughs> Well, uh, I'll return to the playoffs uh, briefly in a stat blast at the end of this. Uh, do you have any other any other postseason thoughts? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I would encourage. Everyone to exercise caution when standing on um, benches in the dugout, particularly mm-hmm. if you're in dress shoes, which are often slippy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just like
0: slippy little shoes. What was the the attendance and the atmosphere like? Because you had mentioned that being a day game and all. They
1: they announced it as a sellout. It looked mm-hmm. very full. I was in the third. I'm in the third row for for these ones, which I don't say in like a woe is me, but just the third row of the press box at Chase. You can't visualize the upper deck and so I don't know if it was all you know if people were going all the way to the last row like they were for the Dodgers game like every seat in that Mm -hmm. park was full but if it looked very full it felt very full it was loud again some of that was owing to the roof being closed but they were they were into it it was a good it was a good atmosphere it's hard with Philly and Arizona because there's a lot of red to be had in um in everybody's y- uniforms, and so until the sound started, I couldn't really tell like what the distribution was. But I would say that the majority of the folks there were Diamondbacks fans, and they made their presence heard. The Philly fans did too, but they were shouted down a, f- a good bit. Now I wanna I wanna be clear because I don't want to stir anything. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it was as loud. As as Citizen Spring Park. That's not Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. I'm saying it was loud. It's not a comparison. I'm not I'm not lobbing any bombs.
0: Well, Uh, I'm I'm looking forward already to what lies beyond the postseason. I know we're very playoff centric right now, but but there's one event in particular that I'm excited about coming in November. It's not the beginning of free agency. It's uh, it's not lead action, though that has begun already. That
1: has begun, yeah, yesterday. Yeah. The yeah.
0: Dominican Republic Professional Baseball League has uh, started to play. You can watch that on MLB TV if uh, playoffs aren't on offer or if you prefer to watch that. But, but one thing I'm really looking forward to is there's a Shohei Otani documentary coming out. Is there really? <laughs> Yeah, I meant to mention this last I didn't time. Get
1: that PR email.
0: Yeah, this was uh, in the Hollywood Reporter earlier this week. Ah, uh, okay. Shohei Otani documentary Beyond the Dream set for release on ESPN Plus in the U.S. and Disney Plus internationally. The subhead says the doc is said to provide an unprecedentedly intimate <laughs> and in-depth look mm-hmm. at the baseball superstar's unique life and career. So that's exciting. November 17th, Shohei Otani, Beyond the Dream, the first official documentary about Otani. It's uh, directed and edited by Toru Tokikawa. It's said to include Otani's first in-depth interviews about his background and how he nurtured and pushed his unique talent. And it includes interviews and appearances by coaches, players, managers, mentors, baseball heroes that have influenced him. I'm thankful for the opportunity to share my journey in this documentary. Otani said, hearing the stories shared by my childhood heroes has been truly inspiring. I hope this documentary stands as a testament to the importance of resilience, passion, and self-belief in the pursuit of excellence. So it's going to trace his whole career from his uh, childhood to Hokkaido, to the big leagues. And, and I guess this is sort of the official rollout of his, uh, free agency, right? Yeah. This is this is like his his debutant ball. This is his coming out party as a free agent. It's like let's get familiar with uh, Shohei Otani, this guy that everyone can bid on and potentially employ. So, he is quite reticent typically. He doesn't do a whole lot of interviews and, you know, he's been besieged by uh, interview requests and reporters his whole <laughs> professional career and yeah. most of his his adult life, but he doesn't grant a whole lot of audiences, and and they're typically pretty brief. And yeah. so, I guess he has chosen that this is the way that he will speak. You know, if you're yeah. if you're a big enough star, then you could say I'm not going to talk day to day to the beat writers so much. Uh, every now yeah. and then, I'll throw them a bone, but I'm going to wait for the real rollout when I get my my big documentary on ESPN Plus and Disney Plus, and then I will pull back the curtain slightly in probably a curated way that I'm sure he decided exactly what he wanted to do and and how much he was willing to open up. So, you know, I don't think this is going to be like a a tell-all or anything, (laughs) you know, probably not hard-hitting journalism going on here, but at least a a longer, you know, English-language documentary look at Otani than we've typically gotten
1: yeah that's exciting i didn't Mm -hmm. i didn't know ben i just didn't know
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm someone who, who watches and and writes about and podcasts about every Star Wars show on Disney Plus and right. watch all the MCU stuff. And I have a daughter who is obsessed with Moana and Elemental and wants uh. to watch uh, Disney stuff every day. And yet, this is probably my most anticipated <laughs> Disney Plus release ever the Shohei Otani documentary, or even if I'm watching it on ESPN Plus ultimately. So that's. Something to look forward to.
1: Moana is great. Moana's I, good, yeah. I haven't seen Elemental. Is it mm-hmm. good?
0: Yeah, I liked Elemental. I, okay. I saw Elemental in theaters, and Moana I was unfamiliar with until recently, and now I'm extremely familiar with it. But it has uh, held up fairly well to the ultimate test of a two-year-old wanting to watch it every single day. How quickly will that drive you mad? And, you know, it, it fairly slowly, all things considered.
1: Yeah. I Moana, I like the shiny song, you know, I love uh, the whole thing. All the music in Moana is good, but like the shiny one is like particularly fun. Yeah. Being a parent, that seems
0: hard. <laughs> yeah. Watching Moana more than you might want to is not the hardest part, but it's it's not the easiest part either.
1: When are you going to start um, putting Frozen into the mix? That's Cause the question. Yeah, that's,
0: we've,
1: yeah. I feel like it has ruined some lives, you know, yeah. once or twice. Great. Fine. Um, the The degree to which people, children love that. And I guess Encanto is the same way. Like mm-hmm. um, every parent I know is like, we don't talk about Bruno. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Like, yeah. I, I'm yeah. sorry. I, I'm confused. Don't tell <laughs> me. It's fine. I'm sure I'll watch it at some point.
0: We have not talked about Bruno in my household as of yet, because I'm apprehensive. I, I've heard from other parents, like once once you break the seal on Frozen, like that's it. You know, so so we're trying to delay that a little while. I, you know, every now and then we go to Disney Plus and on the the menu, the landing page, you see Frozen there, and I'm I'm waiting, dreading for the moment when she requests that one, but hasn't happened yet. So I'm sure we'll be in our Frozen phase soon enough. Yeah. So maybe we can answer a couple emails here that are not about pedantic emergencies. So here's one from Michael who says, listening to your conversation on playoff rest and had some thoughts and one half-baked theory. I feel the logical conclusion is rest impacts each individual player differently. So every fan base will always have some player that can conclude the rest hurt and probably be right. Did extra rest hurt Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman? No idea. But as a disappointed Dodgers fan, it's easy to gravitate toward that explanation. And I would have preferred they kept the momentum from their great seasons. But Will Smith had a very good playoffs, likely because of the rest and feeling the best he'd probably felt since April. I'm not a fan of the expanded playoffs, but we have them. And that means fans and media need to adjust expectations, narratives, and levels of disappointment. So my half-baked theory on wildcard teams having an advantage, baseball is a game of hot streaks. The A's won seven games in a row this year. Whoever emerges from that first round is more likely to be a team on a hot streak. I'm worried I'm just saying momentum is real, but part of my brain can't shake this the team that wins a playoff series is not the best team, but the team playing the best baseball right now. Does this increase the chances a team with a bye is stuck facing a team currently playing above its true talent level? You're weeding out the teams playing at or below their talent levels and left with the teams firing on all cylinders. It feels like actively selecting for teams currently playing winning baseball would have a bigger impact than a few days of rest. So what do you make of the the hot hand if you have a buy you are sort of selectively facing teams that played well enough to make it through the wild card round and so you're going to be facing the hot team and you'll be at a disadvantage mm.
1: i mean i i think that i think that baseball as a as an endeavor is prone to like a lot of streakiness i think that part is true i don't know if i would say that i necessarily put much store in like the hot hand i know that like i just think that sometimes you have a bad run like i i i feel like we're trying to over complicate uh mm-hmm. the thing that's like sometimes guys are good and sometimes they have a bad week and sometimes their bad week lines up with other guys bad week and then it lines up with the other team's good week and what do you do with that like i I also think that it's what is like our comprehensive theory of this because it's a big problem that Mookie and Freddie Freeman couldn't couldn't really hit that series, but also all the pitching was bad. But also, I, I don't know, like is is it does everything need to be good at once for you to win a baseball game? Can something <laughs> just be good enough? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do with what do you do with a team? Like, you know, doesn't the the early struggles of the Diamondbacks disprove this, or is this like? It, it, there's two hot teams and so you got two hot teams and then only one hot team can emerge i don't mm-hmm. mean it hot like hot. i mean it like you know playing well yeah. I, i'm not commenting on their hotness that seems sure. i don't know like maybe maybe I, maybe yeah. i don't know i i think that sometimes guys just don't hit well and sometimes they face good pitching you know mm-hmm. um it's hard to disentangle like how much of a struggle is this guy is in a slump and things are going bad and how much is... uh, Sometimes you got to hand it to him. You know, it's not hard Mm -hmm. to disentangle it in in retrospect. I think it's easy to kind of get a sense of it, but sometimes you just get beat, right? Sometimes the other team is just good and you get beat and it's not about you slumping. It's about them playing well. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think... First
0: of all, you don't have to be firing on all cylinders to make it through the wildcard round. You, you really just have don't. to You have to win just, two out of three. Yeah, I have, to have <laughs> so, some
1: l- lucky bounces.
0: Yeah. So it's not a guarantee that if you're the team that had a buy that you'll be facing some team that just is uh, tuned up and, and really just raring to go and, and is going great. That that was kind of the case this year, arguably, but doesn't have to be the case. And then... Not sure that being hot or playing well in one round is predictive of of doing that in the next round. It's uh, certainly possible you could look through history and find examples of teams that walked all over an opponent in one round and, and then didn't do so well in the next round. In fact, people have studied that and looked at how teams finish the season and whether that was predictive of how they would play in the postseason. And nope, not really. You can finish the season hot. You can finish the season cold. Doesn't seem to have much predictive power either way. And also, if you do run into... A hot team. I mean, if if the theory of the case is that you don't have to be the best team, you just have to be the team that's playing the best in October, and sometimes you don't even have to play the best necessarily to right. win. I mean, you could get outscored and and still win, not in a game, but over the course of a, a series, let's say, or out hit or whatever. But but if the theory is, well, the hot team, the team that gets hot, the team that plays well in October is, is going to go all the way. You're going to have to face that team at some point, right? right? I mean, if you want to advance yourself, right? So two hot it, teams, you know. It, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really matter when it happens. I mean, you, right. you'd still rather have the bye, right? You'd still, if you don't get the bye, you might just face the hot team in the first round instead. Right. Or or you will later on if if you stay alive long enough. Like it, at some point you have to have a good series yourself or at least a better series than your opponent has. So, yeah, I don't think this this really holds water for me. So I don't know if being hot means that you stay hot. And also I just I think at some point you have to beat the teams, right? Like either – Either you have to beat the team that's hot, or you have to beat a team that was even hotter than the hot team and beat right. the hot team. Like, right. You know, t- and then,
1: and then <laughs> sometimes the hot team it gets too hot and it combusts. You know, like it yeah. it, it it collapses under the weight of its own hotness. And the sure. only way you can combat it is to unbutton more of your jersey. And then like <laughs> you have to still wear your jersey; it's in the rules. And then like, mm-hmm. what do you do? Because you're like right. exposed, and then you have to slide, and your ber- jersey's unbuttoned, and you get. You get a uh, burn on your chest from sliding and then you are, t- you're literally too hot. You know, you got burnt. So <laughs> mm-hmm. like, then what? I don't know. Yeah.
0: It sounds like you're describing the plot of Elementals, actually. So, is it, sort of. It
1: really? Did I work my way into that? That's. I, so I think nice. you kind of did. Yeah. You get too hot, and then <laughs> too hot to like, handle. Yeah. Too hot to handle, and then what do you do? You got to have water, and then like you cool down. But then, are you too cold? Because then, like, what? Wow,
0: this really is Elemental. It's wow. like you've seen it.
1: Wow. <laughs> and then somebody sings shiny and doesn't talk about Bruno, and we've come full circle. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. It's a even even if you come into it with the premise of I know. this is probably just random and small sample. Our brains still just really, really, really want to find something that, that makes it mean something that, that adds some deeper significance or predictiveness to it. And, Yeah, I just I don't know if it's there. We just, you know, we let some some mediocre teams into the playoffs now. And uh, once you get there, probability says like Rob Maines wrote this week for Baseball Prospectus, It's not that there have been more upsets than expected, really, if, if you look over the past several years or the past 10 years or however long he looked. There have been like exactly as many upsets as you would think, just going purely by probability. It's just that there's more potential for upsets or, or at least for noteworthy upsets because right. there are greater differentials between teams now because you're letting in more teams and some of them are still going to be really good teams and some of them are not going to be so good. And so you're going to have mismatches. And so it will be more obvious, more glaring, more disturbing perhaps when one of of those not so good teams beats one of the better teams, but that's just a function of the playoff format. So yeah, I mean <laughs> we've we've probably gone over this enough. But but even the people who are, are sympathetic to the idea that yeah, it probably doesn't mean that much. It's just the way that the cookie crumpled still yeah. just really want it to mean something more than a cookie crumbling.
1: You know what cookies don't crumble? Really hot ones. They don't tend to that's true. crumble. Yeah, they, kinda, they tend to they like they goo melt. apart. you know? Yeah
0: you can bend they, them. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like goo you know, and then they If they come out of the oven and they're still hot and you don't like the way that they're shaved, you just use a little spatula. You can squish them back into a circle. That's a baking tip from me to you. -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. You're like, I don't do that. (laughs) No, (laughs) but I've seen it done. All right. Question from Chris in a similar vein. He said, uh, listening to episode 2071, I was struck by Ben's musings on the randomness of short series, specifically how he wouldn't be surprised with an underdog beating a favorite due to the variability inherent in a small sample. This got me thinking, if we say that the best regular season team was the Braves, how bad would their opponent have to be for such a result to outweigh the randomness of the playoffs? For me, I think the tipping point would be this year's Colorado Rockies. (laughs) To be Mm -hmm. honest, my analysis was far from quantitative. It was pretty heavily vibes-based. However, I think you can clearly rule out the other playoff teams after all the Braves did lose to one, as well as the other near-playoff teams. A series win for the Cubs or the Padres or the Mariners were certainly within reason. Even when considering below 500 teams, I couldn't say for sure that I personally would be shocked beyond belief. Could Kodai Senga blank the Braves for a game and Lindor launch a few? Certainly. Could Otani single-handedly propel the Angels past the Braves, certainly unlikely but feasible in such a brief set. However, I can't in good conscience imagine a scenario where this year's Rockies credibly get it done. For anyone who is a fan of the team, I apologize, as I'm sure this feels like me picking on them, but I think the combination of one, being a bad team, and two, not really having a few players who seem like they could get hot enough to take over in a short series, kind of like the hot goalie theory for hockey, takes them past the brink for me. Curiously enough, my personal thought experiment was not necessarily restricted purely to team quality. Even though their records and or run differentials were worse, in my snap judgment, I even thought there'd be a possibility of this year's White Sox Royals or Athletics making it out of a short series victorious. As ludicrous as this sounds, I think it's anchored to either theory number two above, that those teams have players who are good enough to inject sufficient variance, or the narrative around those teams being frankly better than the Rockies. Even with Oakland, the on-field narrative for them this year surrounded how absolutely awful their start was, but that they were not quite abysmal for the latter portion of the season. The Rockies, on the other hand, didn't really have the narrative ups and downs during the season, which is making it harder for me to visualize a scenario where they take out a top team. All this is to say, what would your line be? If it includes the Rockies, would we need to delve deeper into historical teams, the 1899 Cleveland Spiders? You mentioned on the episode that the MLB playoffs are a bit akin to March Madness. After this exercise, I'm inclined to agree. Specifically, I think I wouldn't be surprised much by the results of one specific series, but I would be fairly surprised if a clear underdog actually went all the way. After all, while there have been plenty of 14 and 15 seed upsets, the lowest seed to actually win the tournament is an 8 seed. So, yeah, I guess... It matters whether we're talking about just could they beat the Braves in a single series or could they go all the way and win the World Series? Like it is – it's hard to imagine. You know, you could calculate the probabilities and it would be a non-zero chance that even the Rockies or the A's or whoever could win. You know, it doesn't take that many wins, right? You just say 11 wins or whatever it is to to win the world series uh, you could do that no matter how bad a team you are even though you'd be facing exclusively pretty good to great teams but yeah that's as close as you can come to the the limit in baseball like would you would you be surprised if if the a's or cuz these things happen during the regular season i i actually don't think the rockies won a series against an eventual playoff team this year. I could be wrong about that, but I was I was checking ben, to see if that was true. Lovely, what a lovely,
1: <laughs> what a thing to ask because, mm-hmm. uh, let's see. So the Rockies had a winning series record against, are you ready? Yeah. The Boston Red Sox, the Chicago mm-hmm. White Sox, the Cleveland Guardians, the Kansas City Royals, the Los Angeles Angels, the Miami Marlins. They went five mm, and okay. two against the Marlins. So, okay. the Milwaukee Brewers. They were okay. four and two. All they right. were uh, they won against both uh, New York teams. That's funny.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: they were let's see. They were five hundred against St. Louis, who famously did not make the postseason. Yes. So, Miami and Milwaukee. Okay. Uh They managed. Now, one of their wins against Miami was a walk-off, which is funny given Miami's record in one-run <laughs> games. So, <Yeah>. brah! Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they did not win the season series against Minnesota, but they did walk them off also. Man, they really won so few games, Ben. Yeah. They were 0-7 <laughs> against the Braves, which is very funny. I thought I had
0: looked. I guess they actually, they swept the Brewers in May at home, it looks like. So so these things can happen. (laughs) And (laughs) and
1: like to be clear, they played they played, you know, it's not a lot of it's not a lot of games. They played seven games against Miami. They played six games against Milwaukee. You know, it's like they're not these are these Mm -hmm. are they went 0 and seven against the Braves. So maybe that puts the What's the lie to it? Yeah. Boy, what a bad baseball team. Not My great. goodness. Yeah.
0: yeah. So if you had the 1899 Cleveland Spiders, whether they were the actual Cleveland Spiders from 1899 who were terrible against other players from 1899, right? They they went 20 and 134 against their contemporaries. So I would imagine that the 1899 Cleveland Spiders might be winless against 2023 teams. So so yes, if you took a truly historically terrible worst of all time team, then I would be very surprised if they well, won the World Series certainly, but but even beat a team like the Braves in one series, that would cross my threshold for yeah, that's that's surprising. You know, it, it wouldn't be the weirdest thing that ever happened, probably, to win a best of five. But right. but it, it would it would surprise me. Would it shock me? Maybe, maybe it would come close to shocking me. But really, any any current team, no matter how bad, if it's a big yeah. old team, I still don't think that quite does it. But but the Rockies would be fairly close, and and I I think I would probably still prefer the Rockies to the A's. (laughs) I think, you know, we we can dump on the Rockies plenty, and we do, but... The Rockies uh, were a better team. They were a 59-win team to the A's 50 wins. Uh, They were a 60-win Pythag team to the A's 49 wins. I don't know what what the records were in the second half after the A's terrible start. But yeah, probably prefer the Rockies to the A's at least. Not necessarily to the Royals because the Royals really underplayed their run differential and base runs record and everything. But yeah, it would it would surprise me, but it wouldn't completely bowl me over if they won a single series against a good team because it happened not against the Braves, but but at least against some some decent teams.
1: Yeah. I mean, like things can be possible and still wildly surprising, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's the thing about baseball. It's like, is it possible? Yeah, sure. Of course. Like, Mm -hmm. but is it? Likely, no. Would it mm-hmm. make you go, what is going on? Yeah. Like, oh my God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, Ben?
0: I have one more, and this is sort of a weird one. <laughs> so excellent. <laughs> all right. This one comes from Matt, Matt Trueblood, in fact, who says, Will Harris, not the former relief pitcher, recently tweeted a typically disturbing AI rendering of a Dodgers team suited up to play football. In gazing at it in horror, the thing that jumped out to me most was the second man from the right in the front row. He has two right hands. What? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'll send you the link and I will link to it, of course, on the show page. But – AI is sort of uh, famously, infamously not so great with the fingers.
1: Yeah, they're bad with hands.
0: Yeah, getting better, so, but but not so great with, with yeah. the digits and the appendages. Okay. Oh, so, no, I'm so
1: afraid to open this. Wait, hold on. <laughs> let me look at it. Two right
0: hands. You sometimes hear like, you know, ah! so-and-so has uh, two left feet, right? Ah! Would be a way to say that someone I is kind of clumsy, like, but ah! two right hands. So
1: <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like that. Ben, that's question
0: like is it. the obvious one, he says. How would a pitcher who had a right hand on their left arm do? (laughs) Obviously, the possibilities for a mind-bending array of pitch movement characteristics are tantalizing, but I feel like this would interfere pretty severely with the muscular wiring, if you will, of the arm. To permit a person to pitch this way... Would they also need to have a freak UCL across the elbow from its usual place?
1: Oh my God. Would
0: the forearm be able to reverse itself to support the physiological nightmare?
1: Oh no. And even
0: if so, is the shoulder it. adaptable enough to accommodate having a backward arm attached to it? What's the fastest you could expect a pitcher like this to throw? Set aside the medical questions, though. (laughs) Let's assume it all basically works. I mean, sure, why not? You you know, R.A. Dickey didn't have a UCL. It worked for him. What arsenal of pitches would you build for this hurler? And how quickly would hitters adjust? Would this person's cutter be different enough from a normal lefty sinker to cause lasting confusion? Or would they just play like a righty? Do you have them throw a full suite of what will feel like normal breaking balls for them but act like different shaped screwballs? Let's just ponder their four seamer. Does it freak hitters out? Is the angle weird enough to flummox them? Can the arm work in a totally different way or will their stuff loosely take the same basic shape as that of a normal lefty with only subtle differences based on backward grips?" I've typed all this and now I suddenly feel sure this is a past pod topic. Alas, <laughs> last sending anyway. I don't think it was. So yeah. you know, we've talked about where you would put the third arm if there was a third arm, right. and whether that would benefit a pitcher.
1: We thought about the hair if it was on the on the top yeah. of the head. You know, and I, f- I feel like there
0: was there was one maybe about. I think there was one, some sort of vivisection scenario, some like Island of Dr. Moreau, where it was like, if you could alter a yeah. pitcher's hand in some way, how would you do it? But this is different. I think this is a little bit different. This is this is natural. This is not altered or enhanced. This is just, hey, you're born with, with two right hands. So I wonder, I mean, look, physiologically, I guess we would have to consult an, an anatomist. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, someone. <laughs>
1: far beyond, far beyond my expertise, just wildly uh, outside of my expertise. I mean, I think the boring answer to this question is that you would just have the guy throw right-handed with his on the right side of his body hand, <laughs> right? Like, wouldn't you just have him be a righty? Like a like a traditional righty? I'm not going to say a normal righty because, like, this is how this guy's born. Like, yeah. I'm not sure. going to judge. Like, that's just how you came out. That's fine. Yeah. But, like, I think you would be like, that would be weird and hard to do. Because, like, yeah, how does the elbow piece work? <laughs> like, what is that? What would you do?
0: Presumably... He would find some way to compensate physiologically. Like if if he was born this way, Sure, you know, uh, people transcend all sorts of what one might think could be limitations and turn out not to be, right? Uh, People are very resourceful and ingenious and uh, brain plasticity being what it is, uh, we've talked about all the players who go against their natural handedness and yeah. learn to throw or swing or pitch or whatever with, with the other hands because uh, someone tried to turn them into a switch hitter or a lefty or they were hurt their dominant hand. And so they learned how to use the other one for a while. So I I don't doubt that. That they could, I guess it depends on exactly how the anatomy works. Like there, there could be some constraints on the force that they could generate or the angle at which they could throw. It's uh, it's hard to say without you know having the X rays and <laughs> the MRIs and and getting in there and, and seeing how all the tendons and ligaments and and bones and muscles connect to each other. Not that we would be qualified to assess that. Oh but gosh, yeah, no, someone who could. But yeah, if we just assume that they are more or less unimpeded by this that that they could throw with regular stuff, I guess the question is though, yeah, so so you'd be basically you'd be like Pat Venditti except right. except weird. You'd, you'd have the same <laughs>
1: weirder <laughs>
0: weirder <laughs> yeah, he was already weird. Weird was the baseline. Uh. But I, the advantage i guess to throwing with both instead of just using one arm would be possibly that that you can work more maybe it's a little lighter workload you're still going to have to work your lower body and everything but you know your your arm is going to get sore and then you can use the other arm yeah. instead it's maybe a little fresher so maybe you can get a few more innings out of this guy and then the question is, will it be a help or a hindrance in terms of the actual stuff? So if it came out of the arm like you were just a, a righty, except you were facing the better like, lefty, right? like a lot of the platoon advantage is just the angle and, and just right. not – it's partly the movement, but it's also the angle and just not getting as good a look at the pitches and so – That might still apply with this guy, but then the stuff might be weirdly – I think this would be very beneficial one way or – like assuming you can actually pitch. Pitch, yeah. I think it would be good because all you want to do is is stay out of the middle range of everything as a pitcher. Like you don't want your stuff to move like everyone else's moves. And so there are pitchers who have some weird release point or whatever, like the Josh Hader fastball where you think it's going to move one way and then it doesn't, like your movement profile doesn't match your release point.
1: Hader is such an interesting one to to bring up, though, because so much of how Hader is getting the action that he is on his pitches has to do with like wrist pronation and wrist position and like where he is releasing. And so then I'm trying to, I'm like trying to do it sitting here and I'm almost (laughs) knocking things over. But it's like, how would you, I'm trying to, okay, so this is my right hand. So my thumb goes, okay, so I have to turn it around and then (laughs) try to, okay, so can I just say, you're just sitting here. So here's how I'm trying (laughs) to. Oh, this is terrible radio. Okay. So like Ben, put your hands out in front of you. Okay. Okay. Put them out in front of you. And then, so like turn your left hand over so that your thumbs are facing the same direction. Okay. 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 And then try to move.
0: Up my thumbs going, like I'm giving a thumbs up. Okay. Well, yeah. Like, um
1: Yeah. Okay, yeah, like you know, and so then, and then try to like move it it's very and like get any kind of like it's very uncomfortable. I think you blow out your elbow right away, I think you would, but but it's also <laughs> my dumb body, and it's not actually built that way because my arms are oriented the way that people's typically are, so maybe this is a bad example, but a hater is interesting because it's like it could be cool. I imagine a smart team could figure out ways to. Take advantage of like how you are like cocking your wrist, basically, and then like you get weird. Like you could do weird stuff with pronation or supination. Like I think it would if if your arm worked like a uh, th- could work through a pitching motion. Yeah, built this way, if it were structurally sound, despite it being your hand being backward, basically, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think it could be really. Cool, because those small things can make such a big difference. I'm here. I, I'm like doing hater. You can't see me, and so you're like Meg. What are you even doing? You're telling Ben to put your hands out. Anyway, I think it could be cool, but I also think that maybe your arm would explode. So you mm-hmm. know, land of contrast. Right, but if it
0: doesn't, then. I, I would but assume, if it didn't, <laughs> yeah, you're you're gonna get some of the advantage of just a unusual release point with yeah. movement profile. And I don't know what he would throw. Like would he throw a typical – man, so many questions. Yeah,
1: like what do you call his breaking stuff? Like what do you – like imagine throwing that stuff like with the same grips but from a funky – it could be really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Like you could have a, you know, you could have a curveball grip. You could have your change up. You could have your slider grip, but then you're throwing it from like a, I'm like doing so much weird stuff with my hands right now. I'm just Mm -hmm. like moving them around. I'm conscious of the fact that my lower back hurts and I'm going to have to sit at a desk all day. I'm just like moving my hands and looking at them. I feel stoned and I'm not. It's weird. You know, this (laughs) podcast is really taking me to a place. (sighs) Anyway.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> the safest move is to just go, okay.
0: <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah. I'd, I'd be curious to see if like the the normal pitch type platoon splits apply to this guy yeah. or not. Probably not. I, I think if he could somehow make it work, I think he would be highly effective. And then yeah. I'd be curious about whether he pitched like like a righty typically would to a lefty or like a lefty would? Like, do you th- throw the typical pitches that you right. would to an opposite or same-handed pitcher yeah. or do you just not need to really because it's as if you have the right. platoon advantage? But yeah, but you don't really... Well, you don't. Mm, in a sense, maybe maybe you never have the platoon advantage oh. and maybe you always have it. It depends on your Dramp, point of view. You, it's... It's... <laughs>
1: schrodinger's platoon <laughs> advantage
0: <laughs> all right well if any uh, people who are more knowledgeable about the way the human body works or doesn't work wants to weigh in
1: please let us know I feel like sending this question to some of the player dev folks we know and being like, what would you... Like, imagine this guy walked into your facility. Would you look <laughs> at that and go, what a cool, weird opportunity we have? Or would I you think go, so. ah, yeah. AI is going to kill all of us.
0: Yeah, it's I like think you'd the, be excited, yeah.
1: It's so weird that the hands are what really seems to reliably jam, jam them up. I mean, I know that's not the only... It's not like uh, AI's got it all figured out except for the hands and you know they just have to check that off and then domination awaits but it is weird that that is like there's like a whole john oliver segment about that about how they couldn't do the worst thing about john oliver being back is that every time they do a segment on something they're like here are the states where terrible things happen and arizona is always lit up like a freaking christmas tree on those maps my goodness it's so reliable get it together fellow
0: arizonians oregonians all right, I'll end with a quick stat blast here.
1: They'll take a data set sorted by something like DRA minus or OBS plus, and then they'll tease out some.
0: The Stat Blast, as always, or as of late, (laughs) brought Mm -hmm. to you by our sponsor, Tops Now. Tops Now. Topsnow now still doing its thing in the postseason. Its thing being making baseball cards available very shortly after events happen in baseball games. And now the only events happening in Major League Baseball games are postseason events. So if you go to tops.com and look at the latest offerings for TopsNow, and we will link to that on the show page as always – then you're going to see a lot of Astros and Rangers and Diamondbacks and Phillies. Those are your only options for now. But you can commemorate your teams or A-teams if it's not your team, but you want to commemorate it anyway. You still can. You want to collect all the memorable postseason moments. You can. So you can anticipate that uh, those big moments in the game. I don't think like... Tori Lovello pulling Brandon Fott is a tops now, necessarily. As we record, the latest cards are are not quite up yet. So I uh, can't confirm that as we speak. But you know, maybe Brandon Fott would be a, right. a tops now. And, I would uh, suspect so. Probably Catal Marte will be yeah. a tops now. I don't wanna put cards in in tops' assembly line here, but but that's what I would do if I were uh, I wonder how often our intuition would match the Tops Now selections mm. if, if we sort of predicted the Tops Now cards every day, how close we would come. but We
1: need some Tops Now analytics.
0: Yeah. So look, these postseason moments, they're memorable. And this is one way that you can remember them by having them memorialized on cardboard. And you can go to tops.com, different suite of cards every day. Collect them all or collect a select few of them. It's up to you. But there's a fresh batch every day, at least if there were games the previous day. All right. So we've been talking a lot about how this postseason has on the whole not been super exciting. And I come bearing stats that make that case. So Mm. it is true (laughs) that this postseason on the whole, on average, has not been that tense. That's Mm. suspenseful. And I guess there are multiple ways one could quantify that. One could look at, say, the percentage of games that have been played. So if you played close to the maximum number of possible games, if the series all went deep, then that might be one way to assess how exciting a, a postseason was. Obviously, We won't know yet until these series and the World Series are over what the final figures will be for this year. But that's one way you could look at it. You could look at it in terms of lead changes and late lead changes, which there just have not been a lot of. And you could look at it in terms of changes in win expectancy, which is one way I enjoy looking at these things. So I'll, I'll start there. So you can look at win probability added, and championship win probability added. And Fangraphs and Baseball Reference both have postseason WPA. Baseball Reference has postseason championship WPA, and I take it Fangraphs is going to have that very shortly. Yeah, soon. Yeah, so so that's just sort of a a series-level or even season-level stat that does what WPA does, which just kind of quantifies really how the game feels when you're following it in the moment and what's the win expectancy at any given moment how does that swing throughout the game as one team gets the upper hand and perhaps then has the lower hand so you can quantify all of the the changes and look at the cumulative changes in win expectancy in a game and that's one way to say how exciting was that game and It's not always, like, analytically proper to sort of divvy up the credit because, like, you know, defense doesn't really get WPA. It's just all attributed to the pitcher, and obviously this, you know, it just depends on when you come up. This is not like a talent measurement, but it's late innings. There are guys on base. It's a high leverage moment. You can have bigger win expectancy swings, even if, you know, hitting a grand slam in that situation – is the same as hitting a Grand Slam in the first inning in some senses. But in other senses, it feels like it means much more. Yeah. And it uh, feels more decisive in the moment. And WPA is one way to quantify that. So you can add up all the win expectancy changes in a given game. So you look at the win expectancy graphs, and sometimes they are just jagged, right? Lots of peaks and valleys. And one team goes up, and the other team goes down, and then they reverse, and if there are a lot of changes like that in a game, then your cumulative change in win expectancy, I guess the absolute value of the changes in, in win expectancy, are going to be great. And you can look at that just on an average you know, per game basis and see what the total win expectancy swing per game is. And if we do that, so far... Through the most recent CS games, as we speak here on Friday morning, the average cumulative win expectancy swing per game in these playoffs is 2.2, which probably doesn't mean much without context. But take it from me, it's low. And in fact, it is the lowest in any postseason of the divisional era. So 69 on when they added the championship series when it was more than just a World Series. This is the lowest. So it looks like actually the lowest since 68, in fact. So any postseason with more than eight games, this is the lowest. And, of course, we're up to 29 games thus far. So to find a a lower one, you have to go to 1982, which had 15 games and was also 2.2, but a slightly higher 2.2. And then 74, like to, to find a postseason with this many games that had an average win expectancy swing this low, you have to go to 2019 when there were 37 games and the average swing was 2.4. And we could go back and and see what we were saying about the 2019 postseason at the time. But, you know, you can kind of feel it, really. And we can feel it now, I think. And and if you look at championship win probability added per game, so this is the same thing, except it is measuring not just your chances of winning that game, but your chances of winning the World Series. Well, we're at by far the lowest so far at 0.22, but... That's not really fair because we haven't had the World Series yet and you're going to get the biggest swings in championship win probability added during the World Series, of course. But if we even just look for no World Series, we just exclude the World Series from every postseason, it's still the lowest at 0.22. Last year was the previous lowest at 028 of course, you know, we haven't gotten to the decisive games of the championship series yet either. So, so this right. may come up, but but purely on a win expectancy basis, yeah, it's it's been a bit boring. <laughs> you know, as as you said like there've been only really two games the the two Phillies right. involved games that we talked about that I yeah. think I will remember <laughs> like you know if if you're a fan of the teams then sure you'll remember but but me I, I i don't know like i i guess i'm undercutting the mission of tops now here by by saying that a lot of these postseason games have been a bit dull by postseason standards but you know it's it's true uh, we we go where the stat less takes us without fear or favor
1: but some of the the like big Individual moments in those games, I think, lend themselves very well to memorialization, even if the games themselves end up being a snooze. Yes, like that is true. You know, it's hard not to um, watch, like Jordan Alvarez or Bryce Harper hit a big home run and not get your heart rate up, even if the mm-hmm. rest of the game is sort of hum. Which I think is one of the really lovely things about baseball. It can have these really exciting moments, even when you know the game is long and full of terrors.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's one way to quantify it. And it backs up our intuition here. The most exciting playoffs, by the way, and I will include World Series this time, by average win expectancy swing per game, 1980 was big. 1924, which was just the World Series, but a classic seven-game World Series. 1995, 1912, that eight-game, seven-game series. 25, 41, lots of seven-game World Series in there. But if we have a lower games minimum, 2004 was big, 34 games. 2003, 1991, of course, 2009. And by championship, win probability added per game. 1924 at the top. 1975, very high in the not-just-world series era 1980 again shows up. The average championship win probability added swing is lower the more games there are, but 1992 and 1993 were pretty high. 1997, 2011. I'd encourage people to peruse the spreadsheets that I will link to. And, you know, you can also look at the percentage of of total possible games played. And Brave. Michael Mountain, listener, Patreon supporter, he actually did this and and put this together the other day that that data that I just used, WPA and CWPA, that came from Kenny Jacklin of Baseball Reference, a, a semi-frequent stat blast consultant. And I'll probably keep tabs on that as we get through yeah. the end of this round in the World Series and see how it all shakes out. But you can also look at yeah percentage of of total games played. And if we do that, as Michael did and he made a spreadsheet that he posted in the StatBlast channel of our Patreon Discord group, which I will also post, you can see that there's quite a wide range. So the highest percentage of possible games played in any postseason is actually 114.3% because that was 1912 when a best-of-seven World Series went eight games. So they got more than the maximum because uh, there was one game that was a a tie on account of darkness. This was before lights at baseball games. And so they had to play an additional game. (laughs) We've <laughs> come a so, long way, you know. Yeah, so so this one goes to eleven. This one goes to eight. That one did at least. And then there have been a bunch of of other postseasons when it was just the World Series, and when they went seven. So that's uh, obviously the the max that you can get. But beyond that, beyond just the World Series going seven, I guess the maximum that we've gotten is it looks like. 1972 and 1973, when 17 out of 17 possible games were played. And then like 85 and 86, we had 20 out of 21 possible games being played. Now, 2003, we Mm -hmm. had, and, and in fact, 2011 also. 2011, remember, had that extremely memorable end of the regular season. But then the playoffs, too, Lots of long series. So 2003 and 2011, 38 of 41 possible games were played. So that is 92.7%. And that's about the max that you can get in recent years when you had lots of rounds and lots of series. Yeah. As for the minimum, of course, you had a lot of years where there was just a World Series and it was a sweep. So four out of seven, that's uh, 57.1% of possible games. But... For games in the divisional era or postseason in the divisional era, you had 69 and 70. Only 11 of 17 possible games were played. That's 64.7%. And then 1990, you had 14 out of 21, and 89 also 14 out of 21. So that's 66.7. That's two thirds of possible games. And then I guess if you're going to go with more recent, 2007 was sort Mm. of a a dud in terms of long series so 28 out of 41 possible games were played that's 68.3 percent so we'll see where 2023 comes out right now we're at uh 29 games played but yeah, it's uh, tough to do the math now. Do you do it out of out of all the possible NLCS games that could be right. played, or or do you give us hundred percent because all the CS games that that have been played have been played, <laughs> which is yeah. kind of tautological? But yeah, we we could end up with one of the lower ones. Like if if the remaining teams uh, take care of business quickly, if we don't get game sevens in these CSs, and if you get a short World Series, then it could end up being on the low side because of the possible series uh, lengths for the, the first couple rounds. We're not really tested. We yeah. we still have not gotten a winner-take-all elimination right. game. And I hope that we do, whether it's in we do. one of these rounds or in the World Series. That's, that's my hope. I hope that whoever wins, that we just get some good games and close series and exciting lead changes and yeah. lots of win expectancy swings.
1: Yeah, because it can be, you know, you wanna you wanna make a a good game of it because then, for a while, there are no major league games. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want your final impression of major league baseball in twenty twenty three. I forgot what year it was for a second there. I was like, what year is it? What what am I what am I saying? <laughs> yeah. You don't want it to be boring. You want it to be thrilling. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, there's always lead em, so.
0: Yep. Yeah, Michael said the 10 team wildcard era record is 2014 when we got 32 of 43 games. So that's 74.4%. That was uh, that was I guess for the the lowest percentage last year it was 75.5. Percent of games for the 12-team the era. And as I said, one other way you can look at it is by just looking at the number of lead changes and late lead changes. So Ryan Nelson, frequent stat blast consultant, looked it up that way. By my count, we have had eight total lead changes in the 29 playoff games so far, and only two late lead changes, defined as seventh inning or later, those two Phillies games. So that's like, 28% of games have had a lead change and about 7% have had a late lead change. That is very, very low. We're defining lead change fairly liberally here. Like if a team goes up one nothing in the top of the first and then the other team scores 2 in the bottom of the first, that's a lead change. Although it's not a lead change if one team is leading and then there's a tie and then the team that was leading takes the lead again. So it looks like if we compare just to pre-World Series games, this is the lowest percentage to this point of games with a lead change. And there have been only a handful of years with a lower percentage of late lead changes pre-World Series. The average in the divisional era pre-World Series is 0.6 lead changes per game. I guess it's not technically percentage because you could have multiple lead changes in a game, but that's the average 0.6 lead changes per game. And this year we're at 0.28. So less than half the typical rate. And usually you have about 0.21 late lead changes per game. So this year so far, we're at about one third of the typical rate. So yeah, just not great. The postseasons with the highest number of lead changes per game, including World Series 1980, shows up again, one07 total lead changes per game then 87 99 90 75 this is with at least 12 total playoff games 2009 was a good one and the best years for late lead changes per game 72 99 80 2009 some of the usual suspects showing up there too so we'll see where it shakes out this year and we'll probably uh when it's all said and done when the dust settles then we will give you the final figures Well, listeners, this is the outro now. I'm back. It's Ben, a slightly older, slightly more knowledgeable Ben, because I now know what transpired in the two baseball games that took place on Friday. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you're probably pretty familiar with the concept of regression to the mean. You see some extreme results. It's likely that they won't stay so extreme, that they'll come back to earth a bit, sometimes in a disappointing way, sometimes in a very welcome way. And this is one of those times, because right after I finished the stat blast about how few lead changes we'd seen and how few late lead changes we'd seen especially, we got a couple of classic baseball games, which each had two lead changes. That's a total of four lead changes, including one late lead change apiece. I believe these were the first playoff games this year with more than one lead change. So I wanted drama, I wanted competitiveness, I wanted excitement, and boy did these games deliver. The Astros came back to beat the Rangers 5-4. to four. The Diamondbacks came back to beat the Phillies 6-5. to five. So the NLCS is even now. The Astros are one win away from another World Series appearance. Both games had a crucial late home run in the 8th or ninth. Altuve hit yet another postseason home run. And Alec Thomas, pinch hitter, hit one off of who else? Craig Kimbrell. Lots of great pinch hitting action in both of these games. There were a couple pinch hitters who preceded the Altuve home run for the Astros. But yes, our warnings about Craig Kimbrell went unheeded, and the Phillies were punished again. So that is more like it. They can't all be like that, but some of them have to be like that. A couple of super exciting games, raising those rates of lead changes and late lead changes per game. So, playoffs not over. Still time for them to end on an up note. Good stuff. Not for Phillies fans, not for Rangers fans, but for any fans who want to see some back-and-forth battles decided late in the game. More like that, please. Keep them coming. And you can keep your support for this podcast coming by going to patreon.com slash wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Andrew Blythe, Chris Wiki, Brendan Bonner, Karina Longworth, and Joe Camarada. thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. There's a great channel in there just for postseason game chatting, and we will be chatting and live streaming during an upcoming playoff game. That's another Patreon perk. We've already done one this month. We also do monthly bonus episodes. And you can also get discounts on merch and ad-free fangrafts memberships and so much more, patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site, but anyone and everyone can contact us via email at podcast Send us your questions, your comments, your intro and outro themes if you want to join our rotation. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back to talk to you probably after the end of the championship series. So enjoy the last steps on the path to the pennant. Talk to you soon. If baseball were different, how different would it be? And if this thought haunts your dreams, well stick around and see what Ben and Meg have to say philosophically and pedantically. It's effectively wild.
1: Effectively wild.